Well, let me pray. Father, I need, I need you, your spirit, to come and to stir both in my heart, to encourage my heart with your word, and uh, just the, the words I would have to say, also with uh, just infusing your truth into the lives of people and into their hearts. So, oh God, we need your, uh, your mercy and your, your grace on this. Uh, and, and I would pray, God, even as my message this morning seems, again, a little bit introductory, I pray that it would be helpful to set the stage for Acts for, for many weeks and months and it looks like even years to come as we just look and see how it is that you have worked in uh, the lives of your people through, uh, through the ages to build your church. And in that, oh God, we do, we do rejoice. Be among us now. Help us and stir our hearts uh, afresh in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember um, in 2003, uh, my oldest daughter, Carissa, was uh, nine years old. And uh, at that year, uh, I remember that it was that year because the third movie of the uh, Lord of the Rings series came out. It was The, the Return of the King. And uh, Carissa was really wanting to see that movie. Um, she'd asked me if I'd go to the theater, take her to the theater to watch. And uh, um, I said, yeah, that'd be great because I was the good dad, right? Being that, uh, I was. Uh, she had seen the previous two movies on DVD and I uh, wanted to see this third. And also I talked to her this week about this story. She said, yeah, dad, and I just wanted a dad-daughter date. And so I didn't know that perspective coming from a nine-year-old, but that was helpful for me to learn. She just initiated that. We did that together. We went to the, the Lord of the Rings. Now, for me, I'd never seen the first two, but this was the, the third movie, which meant that our, our viewing uh, experiences were vastly different. I mean, if you, if you think about it, like Carissa totally understood the history and significance of the ring. I did not. I hadn't read Tolkien. I didn't know what the ring was about. I didn't know about Gollum. I didn't know about... I, I didn't know. She was familiar with Middle Earth and how it all worked. Uh, I wasn't. She knew about hobbits and elves and dwarfs and goblins and orcs and wizards. And I was kind of, I knew a little like a wizard and sort of what a hobbit was, but not really. She knew the main storyline, the key characters. She knew all about Frodo and Sam and Gandalf. In fact, I remember, okay, so this is a long time ago, 17 years ago. But I remember when Mary and Pippin kind of popped on the screen. Oh, Mary and Pippin. Like she's all excited. I'm like, who are these? Who's Mary and Pippin? I had no idea. All that to say that just our viewing experiences were vastly different. She probably understood the movie far better than I do. In fact, she still, I've never seen the first two either, and so I still don't understand. And it was three hours of movie. All I remember the movie, uh, I remember a couple of things, but I remember just it, it never ended. It just kind of went over, and, and, and there was a scene. I thought it was finished, and it, it again, and maybe I don't even know. So I've not even seen it, but it uh, took a long time um, but I say all that just to underscore the importance of seeing the first movie before you see the sequel. Or seeing the first two before you see the third. Um, the same is true of books as well. It's important to read volume one before you read volume two. Uh, otherwise, there are things that just aren't going to make sense to you. Well, this morning we're diving into a sequel. Um, the book of Acts. And it would be good for us today a little bit to understand the prequel, which is the Gospel of Luke. My message this morning is entitled Volume 2, because that's what Acts is. Acts is Volume 2 to the Gospel of Luke, which is Volume 1. 
I want to show you what I mean by that. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Acts chapter 1. I want to begin reading our text. I'm just going to get through the first three verses today. I know I'd anticipated getting through five, but we're only going to get through three. And these verses set forth the context of, of what Acts is about. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 begins with these words, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Then the first few words here of Acts were presented with the fact that Acts is a sequel. Uh, we see there in, in verse 1 that says, in the, the first book, in fact, that's my first point this morning, is the first book. Look at Acts verse 1 again. Right? In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And, and uh, that is, right, there is this book written before Acts that Luke calls the first book. And in and, and this verse, if you don't know anything, brings up a lot of questions like, what book is he talking about? Who's Theophilus? In fact, who is even writing this? And, and some of these questions are really answered at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. So you can keep your finger here, uh, whatever, and turn back to Luke. Uh, we're going to look at the, the prologue to Luke, the first four verses, which have some similar words that we read here in Acts chapter 1, because it's the same writer writing to the same per- to person, really with the same purpose. Luke chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4 read this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. This is Luke's introduction to his first book that he wrote, and he wrote it to a man named Theophilus. This is what we call the Gospel of Luke. And and Luke, in these four verses, are basically saying this, is that, that lots of people have made an effort to write down and record what happened during the days of Jesus. And there, there are many who have witnessed Jesus and have ministered his word. And, and I've spoken to these people, and even I myself, I've, I've studied this. I follow these things closely, and I, uh, I have investigated the life of Jesus myself. And, and I thought that I was just in a good position to write it down for you as well. And this following document I'm giving you, Theophilus, is really the result of my careful research. And that's what the Gospel of Luke is, really. It's like a research paper. And uh, Luke's research is outstanding. Because Luke is an excellent historian. He is, he is very bright. I mean, in fact, if you compare the Greek in Luke and Acts with the Greek that Paul writes, or the Greek that John writes, or, or Matthew, or Mark, or Peter, without question, Luke's writing is the most complex and the most difficult and the most artistic, in some regards, to read. I mean, even look at how Luke starts in the ESV. This is good. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. And and he didn't stop the sentence there. He goes on. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. It really kind of captures what what Luke is like in the Greek. It's just this this overflowing sentence with large words that are, are difficult to understand. It's because he has great intellectual abilities. He was a highly educated man who wrote excellent Greek. He was a very capable historian. 
But that wasn't his main occupation. Do you guys know what his main occupation was? Any, any of the kids? You know what his main occupation was? Luke was, yes. He was a doctor. We got Dr. Luke. I don't think he looked exactly like that. But it kind of gives you a little perspective about uh, who Luke is. He was a doctor by trade. In Colossians 4.14, Paul calls Luke the beloved physician. That is, right, the loved physician And I trust that comes because I think Luke was probably a very caring man who dealt with the sick with compassion and and grace. And Paul certainly experienced uh, what Paul's or Luke's care for him at the end of his life. When writing 2 Timothy, the very last book that Paul wrote, he's in a Roman prison cell, uncomfortable, soon to have his head chopped off. And he wrote to Timothy, the time of my departure has come. And in chapter 4 and verse 11, he says that Luke alone is with me. So you can picture the scene as there's Paul in this cell, whatever it exactly looked like, um, and how he was in distress, and people need to bring him food and to help him, and the sanitary uh, things weren't so nice there, and it was just difficult. But Luke, this beloved, faithful physician, was right by his side. And my guess is that Luke showed the heart of a doctor Never wanting to leave Paul alone, especially in his hour of greatest need, as he would soon pass away. And Luke, by the way, was often with Paul. Uh, There are, when you read the book of Acts, most of it's in the third person, but there are several chapters written in the first person. And and if you don't know what that means, what it means is this, is that most of the words of Acts are, are using pronouns like he and they. But there are chapters, like entire chapters of 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 Acts, like chapter 16 and chapter 20 and 21 and 27, 28, in which uh, Luke, the author, uses pronouns like we and us. So he was right there with Paul during much of, of Acts. And in fact, even if you calculate all the time that Luke spent with Paul in Acts, it's upwards of 12 years that Luke was right there with Acts doing, or on, on the missionary journey, just observing. And what we have here in in Acts is really a sort of a, an autobiography as he experienced much of the history of, of Acts himself. And in fact, this is what gives him the credibility to write Acts. And this is what gave him the credibility to write Luke as well as he was with Paul. And Paul had witnessed Jesus. And, and he, he mixed with the church and he talked with people who saw Jesus raised from the dead and heard him teach and was in his home. And so Luke had this, just this, this opportunity to write in a very unique way, his friendship and familiarity with Paul was the big reason why Paul wrote in verse 3 of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. <clears throat> well, here is a picture of Theophilus. All we know is Theophilus is here, but I, I saw some, the church makes him the saint uh, Theophilus. Like, who knows? But. But that's the picture. But I want to give you an idea that here's Luke writing to Theophilus. Uh, now, it's interesting. What, what does he title? He calls him the most excellent Theophilus. The phrase most excellent in the New Testament is used only of addressing people of high standing. Uh, so it's used three other times. Twice, it, it's when Paul addresses Felix, the governor, like you know, like, like Pritzker or something like that, calling him the most excellent, or just a, an, an honorary title. Um, and Festus in Acts 26. These are Roman governors. These are people who have authority over his life. 
and he's calling them most excellent Theophilus. And most conclude, I think rightly so, that Theophilus was probably some sort of official in the, the Roman government. Some have thought that even Theophilus maybe was the one who funded Luke's writing efforts. It takes time to write. We don't know. But at any rate, we know that this is a, um, a, a probably a man of, of high standing in the community. Just by the way, trivia question. Which author of all the New Testament wrote the most? Who do you think? Luke did. Luke wrote more than Paul, believe it or not. Paul wrote 13 letters, but his letters were short. Luke writes Luke, 24 long chapters, and Acts, 28 long chapters. Almost a quarter of the New Testament Luke wrote. And yet we know so little about him other than that he was with Paul. Um, but, but I digress. But anyway, right? we got Luke and Acts were both written to this man, Theophilus. And uh, Luke's gospel was, as he calls it, an orderly account of the life of Jesus. That is, like, Luke gathered all these resources, he talked with all these eyewitnesses, he tried to put it all together, and it was an orderly account. Luke, Luke begins with the, the birth of Jesus. Right? Actually, Luke 2, right before then, the birth of John the Baptist, and then the birth of, of Jesus. Um, and it just continues right on through with his life and his ministry. All he did and taught speaks about his miracles, his conversations with his disciples, his mercy towards sinners, his conflicts with the Pharisees and Sadducees, leading right up to his trial before Pilate and Herod, eventually his death and resurrection. And, and, and this, is, this is all orderly way. See how he set it out. Just so, so that Theophilus could really know the truth. And in fact, what I love about Luke is that both Luke and Acts are basically these historical documents, just trying to put forth the truth of what is real. Just like the whole theme of, uh, of, of, of Acts, as we have said, is to be my witnesses. Just there it is. Just speak forth the truth for other people. Let them know and, and witness for Christ what is true and, and what is not. That's all that Luke is, is trying to do. And, and Luke is the prequel to Acts. Luke is volume one. Acts is volume two. And you really can't understand volume two until you understand volume one. Now, the good news for us today is that most, if not all of us, have a good grasp of, of Luke. Maybe not Luke in its true message or understanding or all the details, but we, we, we know enough, right? Because much of the same materials in Matthew and Mark, I've preached through both those books here at Rock Valley Bible Church, but we're familiar with the story of Jesus, with the life of Jesus, right? They're told in Sunday school. We just got all these stories. Maybe they're not in our mind all set together, but we understand that and we know that he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. How John the Baptist came forth to, to, to prepare the way for Jesus, who began his ministry when Jesus was in his 30s or so. Uh, we know that Jesus loved sinners, and the sinners loved him, and, and he gave them hope. And we know that he was hated by the religious establishment because he was a threat to their security. We know that Jesus went about proclaiming good news to the poor and liberty to captives. We know that he gave sight to the blind, to the blind and set at liberty all those who are oppressed. We know the parables that he taught, like the sower and the seed, or the, the good Samaritan, or the prodigal son, or the persistent widow, or the Pharisee and the publican. We know the principles he taught, like the special place of children in his kingdom, like the importance of heart religion. Uh, rather than just mere external religion, like the requirements of being a disciple, that it costs us all self-denial and taking up our cross. We know his, his attitudes, how he wept for Jerusalem, and we know his sufferings, how he suffered and died on the cross for our sins. We know his resurrection, how he rose from the dead, and he gave orders to his disciples 
Luke 24, verse 46, he ordered his disciples that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. We're familiar with that, but, but that really is the message that we proclaim, right? Repent and turn from your sins and trust in Christ and you receive forgiveness of sins from God. That's the gospel we preach. It's the gospel all of us, right? Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus who alone can forgive. That's the first book. And it may be of great familiarity with us, but you know what? Not so much with Theophilus. I mean, it, 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 was, it was all new. Like, I'm, I'm sure Theophilus um, knew some things, but then can you imagine what it was like when he received the gospel of Luke in his hand for the first time? And he got to read for himself clearly what exactly happened during the days of Jesus. And then having read that, and then waiting, and then having the opportunity, the, the second volume sits in his hands. A little bit like Krista uh, when the first two DVDs come out, and then you're just waiting for that third movie to come out because you really want to watch it. And here he gets this. That's his anticipation of his copy of the book of Acts. So let's, let's go back to Acts. Let's, let's look there. We, we, we've seen this first book. Kind of, we're, we're ready now to understand uh, a little bit more about what Theophilus would have understood as he receives this book. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, that is in the Gospel of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he'd given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The, the first thing I notice here is that Theophilus is no longer... Most excellent Theophilus, right? He's just Theophilus here. And and the reasons for this, but maybe he came to faith. Maybe he and Luke became great friends. There's no need for the official title any longer. And I understand this, right? People who are newer at church, you know what they call me? Pastor, Pastor Steve. But after we become friends and we know and understand, you know what people call me? Steve which I prefer, kind of as a sign, like, okay, we're, we're beyond this. Like, I'm not the official pastor now. I'm like your friend coming alongside to help. And I love to see when that transition takes place. Except um, for Tim Iverson, who likes me to call, likes calling me, what? The high and holy reverend Pastor Brandon. Tim just does that to me. But that's a sign of affection as well. Like, he feels he can go way over the top. He's always trying to get me to wear this hat here on Sunday mornings, Trying to sit up in the chair so I can be the high and holy reverend. But, I'm, but that's affection. But that's maybe what happened with Theophilus. He was no longer the most excellent. He was just Theophilus, the friend. And so as Luke began summarizing volume 1, look, look at all, all he does. Here's a summary. You want to say, what is Luke about? Luke is about this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. There's the summary of Luke. What Jesus began to do and teach. And now really sets the stage for, for Luke to continue the story. Because the story of Jesus doesn't simply end with him raised from the dead, ascended to heaven. No, it continues on to his church. You remember he said, I will build my church. And the book of Acts tells us how Jesus is building his church. And, and, but we need to be careful here because we can think about the book of Acts. It's easy to think about Luke is the story of Jesus and Acts is the story of the church. Now, there, there's some truth to that, but there's, a, there's some things where it's not quite right. Look, look again what, what 
Luke says in verse 1. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. His first book was merely the beginnings of the teachings and the doings of Jesus. The book of Acts then is the what? It's a continuation of the work of Jesus. Now, I could just tell you about this, but I, I want to let John Stott just tell you about what this is. John Stott says this in his commentary. He says, Luke tells us how he thinks of his two-volume work on the origins of Christianity, which constitutes approximately a quarter of the New Testament. Luke does not regard volume one as the story of Jesus Christ from his birth through his sufferings and death to his triumphant resurrection and ascension, and volume two as the story of the church of Jesus Christ from its birth in Jerusalem through its sufferings by persecution to its triumphant conquest to Rome some 30 years later. For the contrasting parallel he draws between the two volumes is not between Christ and his church, but between two stages of the ministry of the same book. In his former book, he has written about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, since he was a powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. In his second book, Stott says, he implies that he will write about what Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension especially through the apostles whose sermons and authenticating signs and wonders Luke will faithfully record. Thus, Jesus' ministry on earth, exercised personally and publicly, was followed by his ministry in heaven, exercised through his Holy Spirit and apostles. Moreover, the the watershed between the two was the ascension, which we'll look at tonight, Lord willing, outside in a Bible study, and we will look at next Sunday morning. But Stott says this, not only did the ascension conclude Luke's first book, uh, chapter 24 of Luke, and introduce his second, we see in chapter 1 and verse 9 about him ascending into heaven, but it terminated Jesus' earthly ministry and inaugurated his heavenly ministry. So you see, Luke and Acts, they kind of go like this. What's here in the middle is the, the ascension. This is his earthly ministry with his disciples. This is heavenly ministry. And the ascension is when he leaves his earthly ministry to be in heaven, then to send forth the Holy Spirit, his ministry through the Holy Spirit and his apostles. That's how Jesus sees the second volume of Luke. Remember last week how I talked about titles, like how would you title this book? Um, Most all of our Bibles call it the Acts of the Apostles. As I mentioned last week, the Apostles mention only the Apostles by name. And then only really three of them, they follow through, Peter and and James and Paul. And Peter and James are kind of in the first, but mostly Peter in the first half of Acts and Paul in the second half. So maybe it's Acts of Peter and Paul might be be better. Um, And yet yet it fails... Actually, the apostles fails to give divine credit to the fact that it's really the Holy Spirit that's over and over and over again seen working in and through the apostles. So a better title I gave last week was the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And yet, though, today, right, in, in verse 1, we see the role that Jesus plays in the book because Acts is all about what Jesus continued to do through his apostles. And so here's John Stott's, here's what he says, the most accurate though cumbersome title, then, which does justice to Luke's own statement in verses 1 and 2, would be something like this. I think this is a great title of the book of Acts. The continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his Spirit through his apostles. 
the continuing words and deeds of Jesus. That's Luke is all about what Jesus began to do and teach. Luke is about what he continues to do and teach. By his spirit, there's the Holy Spirit aspect of that, then through his apostles, the people on earth who accomplished that. Now, for us, Acts will do just fine. But when we do Acts, that's what we're thinking about, the continuing works and deeds of Jesus by his spirit through his apostles. Well, there's my first point. We find it in verses 1 and 2, the first book. And in verse 3, let's look at my second point, which I'm just calling 40 days We find this in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 40 days is how long Jesus was with them after his resurrection. So Jesus rose from the dead as with them 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. That's, That's next week. We'll look at that. But these 40 days were really a continuation of the education and training of the disciples. They'd gone through seminary with Jesus for three years during his ministry. And now they're taking their final class setting before graduation. And you see what the the title of the class they took during this time? Did anyone see that? Anyone? What's what's the title of the class they took during this time? Maybe on Facebook. Maybe you can tell us quick. What is it? What class they take? What? Okay, let me read it. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What was the class they took? It was about what? The kingdom of God. So for 40 days, his discussion with them was about the, the kingdom of God. And we might, we might just kind of go over that. Just, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, the kingdom of God. No, but this, this, is in crucial, this is crucial what he's talking about here. Because this, this phrase plays a crucial role in, in the book of Acts because Acts is all about God's kingdom here upon earth and, and, and what it looks like now in this time. And, and the book of Acts begins with Jesus teaching his disciples what this kingdom on earth will be like. He's, he's teaching about how the, how the church plays into that role and how God is sovereignly reigning over that. It begins here with, with teaching about the kingdom of God. You know that the book of Acts ends talking about the kingdom of God? Look, look. you can go to chapter 28. There was Paul in house arrest in Rome. It says, Paul lived there two whole years, his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. And it's significant if the kingdom of God is the prominent theme that Jesus is teaching at the beginning... And, and if Paul, at the end, is proclaiming the kingdom of God, what begins and ends is, is crucial to understanding just uh, bookending the book of Acts, if you will. And sprinkled throughout the book of Acts is the kingdom of God, is, is mentioned. It's often it's a summary of what is proclaimed. Uh, Luke summarized the ministry of Philip when he writes this. He says, Luke, Acts 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God... In the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. When Philip was preaching, he was preaching about the kingdom of God. Or when Luke summarizes Paul's ministry in Ephesus, he writes this, Luke 19, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. It was the kingdom of God that was, was his theme. And speaking to the Ephesian elders, 
Paul even says, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. It's this kingdom, this this kingdom of God that's being proclaimed. And the Jews and the disciples were in need of understanding this kingdom, which was a bit different in, in other ages. I mean, just think about the Old Testament. The Old Testament kingdom of God looked different upon the earth than uh, um, the church does today, right? I mean, the Old Testament is more like an ordinary earthly kingdom. Israel, Judah, they were countries under the reign of a king. They had laws. They had military. They had customs. Taxes supported the religious activity of the temple. Like Taxes supported their religion because there was this kingdom. Laws were in place to compel worship. Like this, this week, so my devotional reading took me into Second Chronicles, and I was reading Second Chronicles 15, which records about how Asa brought reform to Judah at uh, the word of Ahaziah or Amaziah, the, the prophet who'd come. I forget his name. But here's what Asa did. When the prophet came to him, Asa put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah. Then he gathered Judah together in Jerusalem, where they sacrificed 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. Here it is, 2 Chronicles 15, 12. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. Just national repentance, the king proclaiming that, hey, we can do this because that's the kingdom um, of the Old Testament. And they also covenanted, check this out, 1 Chronicles uh, 15, verse 13. And they also covenanted, I'm sorry, I think this is, this is Second Chronicles, that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or older, men to women. If you'd not seek the Lord in the kingdom of, of, of Israel, you'd be put to death. Man or woman, young or old, I hope you would still live. And all Israel, First, Second Chronicles 15, 14, all Israel rejoiced with the oath, with shouting and trumpets and horns. In other words, they, they were rejoicing in this. They promised as a nation, all everyone, to worship the Lord. That's, that's how kingdoms worked in the Old Testament. That's how Israel was. That's how Judah was. So the king who's sovereign, who could enact. That would be a little bit equivalent today, the Sharia law, right? Where, where you have in the Quran Muslims, right, saying we want to push this upon all people. You've got to keep this law. That's what kingdom looked like in the Old Testament. But today, the kingdom of God is different. We're not a physical kingdom today with kings and laws and requirements to obey the Lord. And even then, with Israel, there was, there was changing them because they'd been conquered. They didn't have a king. They brought to exile and they'd come back, but they were under the Roman tyranny. And so, so they knew there was no king, no binding upon people. They had no real authority. They, they couldn't punish people with death during the days of Jesus. That's why Jesus brought, was brought to Pilate to be executed. They, did, they didn't have authority to execute anybody. So here the Jews wanted this kingdom, like where they could have a king, an earthly king, and rule over and have all the laws, have everybody Jewish there and, and demand worship. They wanted that. And Jesus said he's the Messiah. He's coming to establish his kingdom. And, and yet they didn't understand the type of kingdom he was coming to establish. When standing before Pilate at his trial, Jesus said, my kingdom is now this world. Yeah, it's, it's a different sort of kingdom. They said, if my kingdom were this world, my servants would have been fighting. That I might be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. I don't need to fight on the physical realm. 
And that's why Paul even said our weapons are not of this world, right? Not flesh and blood, but against the, the principalities, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, right? We have a spiritual kingdom in which we are, are in today. And Jesus spent 40 days with them, teaching them in this classroom the nature of the kingdom with his disciples. It's not a spiritual kingdom. It's, a, it's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns from heaven. And in the spiritual kingdom... People love the king. And people serve the king willingly with renewed hearts and minds. And he's not forcing people to serve the king. They want to go their own way. He lets them go his own way. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 14. Previous generations. He he let them go their own way. Acts chapter 17. Just pursue after your gods. Go. But God has created the world that people should grope for him. And they should long for him. And the people in his kingdom come willingly and lovingly. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach. And we see in the book of Acts about how the church comes in and how it's the, the church. It's the, the spiritual church. And we see even, even see in the book of Acts how it's not just Israel, but it's, it's Gentiles as well. And, and, and the apostles didn't quite understand this so well. After 40 days, they learned only a little. But the kingdom was on their mind. Look at chapter 1 and verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? After taking the kingdom of God class, they, they had the kingdom on their mind, but they still missed it. They didn't understand the kingdom. Like I think about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They longed for Messiah to come and redeem Israel away from Roman oppression. So they didn't understand the, the nature of God's kingdom as a spiritual kingdom. And so if Jesus would have given them a test and exam, they probably would have flunked, quite frankly. They didn't understand but the good news is this, while the disciples may not have done so on the kingdom of God class, when it came to the resurrection class, they got straight A's. And I say the resurrection class because it's the other class in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The ESV here tells us that Jesus appeared to them by many proofs. Uh, other translations enlarge upon this, proofs, by, by saying convincing proofs, like the NAS and the NIV. Or the King James Version say many infallible proofs, right? The idea is that Jesus appeared to them after his resurrection. Without a doubt, he was the same Jesus who had died and lived with them before and was raised from the dead. He talked with them. I mean, mere fact that there was a teacher talking to them. And eating with them. They, they saw him eat. He wasn't some spirit. He wasn't some phantom. It wasn't imagination in their mind. And he lived with them for 40 days. And all you need to do with these proofs is just look at the gospel accounts. You'll see the many times that Jesus appears to the disciples. In Matthew 28, he appeared to the women at the tomb. And then later, John says that he appeared to Mary Magdalene alone. And then he appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24 speaks about that. And then he appeared to Peter in Jerusalem. Luke 24 again is speaking about that. Then later, 10 of the disciples, he appeared to them. Remember, Thomas wasn't with them and Thomas was doubting and said, well, well, only if I can put my fingers in his side, right? Only if I can touch, his, touch him, then, then I'll believe it. And then later he appeared to the 11 with Thomas and he said, here, touch me. I'm real. I'm flesh and blood. And there was another time when he was, he was in Galilee and he appeared to the uh, 11 disciples there. And there's some times when they were fishing in Galilee as well, when Jesus referred, appeared to them there. And, and then that, that's just eight different accounts in the Gospels. 
that have been written down. I'm sure there were many times. Forty days, he was with them 40 days. We just have eight different things in the Gospels. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells about Jesus appeared to even 500 people at, a, at one time. And then even to James. And then even to Paul. Listen to what Paul says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and then was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. When he says appeared to 500, the idea is they're mostly still alive. You can talk to them. Go, go find. Who, who appeared to Jesus? Go talk to them and just see whether he was really alive. And so these convincing proofs were totally sufficient to convince the disciples that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. And all you need to do is just trace their preaching. Their, their preaching is much more about the resurrection than it is about the kingdom of God. It is about the kingdom of God. It is about how Jesus works. But you just trace through. You read Acts looking for it. And I'd encourage you, just in, in next weeks and months when you do that, just, just circle any time you see that Jesus raised from the dead or God raised him up. You'd be amazed to see how many times the apostles are just speaking of his resurrection. Again, just witnessing to the fact of what they'd seen and heard. Peter preached the resurrection in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. After they raised the lame man, and there's questions about that, like how, how this man was walking again. Peter preached the resurrection. And when he stood before the religious leaders who told them not to preach, Jesus or Peter preached what? The resurrection. And uh, what, what do you think Peter preached to Cornelius when he went down there to Caesarea? What do you think he preached? He preached the resurrection. What do you think Paul preached when he was in the church of Antioch and they asked him if he had any word for the brethren? What did he preach? He preached the resurrection. And in Thessalonica, in Acts chapter 17, and in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, he preaches the resurrection. When, when he gave testimony before Felix and Festus and Agrippa and, and Acts 22 through 26, he spoke about the resurrection, Jesus risen from the dead. He really saw him. He proclaimed the resurrection in Acts 23 when standing before the Pharisees and Sadducees. And what's Paul doing? What's Peter doing? They're merely being witnesses to all that they had seen and heard. And that really is the, the, the lesson for us this morning. We may not understand the kingdom of God. By the way, it's a huge topic in Scripture. Perhaps even the overarching topic and understanding about God has always had his kingdom. Established it in the garden, but Adam and Eve failed, so he cast them out of it. And then uh, eventually, even as he was king over, over the earth, people rejected him and ruled him. And then he says, I'm going to be a king over, over with, with uh, Abraham and built him up to be a great nation. And then they reject him. They want an earthly king. But there will be a day when Jesus reigns and rules. Right? That's the Revelation 19. Alleluia, alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent, what? He reigneth. He's the king. He's going to sit as king above all things. It is the, the overarching theme of Scripture, I would even say, is the kingdom of God, how God redeems his people to establish them in his kingdom. And, and, and it's complex and it's difficult. And you may not understand it deeply. That's okay. But... We need to understand and embrace the resurrection. That's not so hard. A dead man raised again. It may be tough to believe because dead men just don't raise from the dead. But the God-man, Jesus raised from the dead. And it's central to our faith. And this is core to our faith. Certainly the cross is central and significant because there that Jesus paid for our sins. But 
we look to the cross only because the resurrection vindicated the, the crucifixion on the cross. The fact that Jesus reversed death upon the cross. So we can look to the cross only because we assume the resurrection, that he is alive. It's the only thing that, that validates the resurrection. And that's what volume one really, really teaches us. It is about the resurrection, it's about the cross, about Jesus and who he was. He raised from the dead. And volume two now is going to teach us about these apostles who saw that resurrection and embraced it and brought it into their lives, convinced of that resurrection, and took that message really to the world. And so I just challenge you, as we think about being my witness in the book of Acts, just I'm praying for you all constantly that as you have opportunities to speak, that you would like take those opportunities to walk through those opportunities and just tell people what you've experienced in Jesus. And as you do, even this week, I just encourage you to really think about the resurrection and how crucial the resurrection is. And again, our picture there, we got the resurrection in the forefront, the empty tomb, as it goes off into the villages and off into the cities, we need to tell others of the resurrection from the dead. So let me, let me pray. Father, I just would pray as we start here in volume two, what, what volume two is about, and we're going to see over and over and over again of, of Jesus being resurrected and raised and proclaimed, and you did your mighty work through that message I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel that Christ died for our sins, He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then He appeared to all these disciples. And how the disciples were merely witnesses of Jesus. We're going to see that played out in volume 2 and would pray you would, you would stir our hearts afresh with the, Your Spirit to work in our hearts to sanctify us, purify us, to stir us towards obedience And then in people we speak to, God, I pray that your spirit would come among us and stir in their hearts as well. God, that you would build your church. Um, You've promised to do that. We pray you'd build Rock Valley Bible Church. You'd build other churches in town. People are faithful in proclaiming your word, proclaiming the resurrection from the dead. God, may we be your witnesses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.